Thank you to those who clapped along. That's, as far as Presbyterians go, that's pretty animated. And I uh, appreciated that. So a new year is beginning. And I'm a little curious, just so I can take a quick poll, how many people this year are making resolutions? Can you raise your hand if that's you? Or is, or is it possible some people are, but they're not willing to raise their hand? Is that? I think I know why. If you raise your hand, it means you're on the hook for keeping your resolution, right? Can I ask, would anybody actually be willing to share vaguely? You don't have to get into great detail. What, what are you trying to change this year, anybody? Uh, Mary Francis. Be more outward looking and listening, you said? Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, I think I hit the nail. Oh, please, Alice, yeah. Take more time for self-care. I do wonder if it's because you vocalize it, there's some accountability there. So I'll, I'll be vulnerable. My wife and I have both uh, dedicated ourselves to getting in shape this year, eating better, exercising more, and so I, maybe by putting it out there, we'll have to be a little more accountable too because you're going to see me in a few months and you're going to be able to tell whether I've kept that uh, resolution. Anybody else? Uh, yes. To be better with your money. It's a great one. Well, I appreciate everybody who participated in that. I want to take a little bit of a step back and ask the question, why do people make resolutions? I think it's because people want to take responsibility for their lives. People want to have a degree of control. They want to have a degree of agency. Another way to say this in the inverse is that people don't want to be victims of life. Because being a victim means you're not responsible, you have no agency, you have no voice, because if you're a victim, somebody else is in control of your life. Now that may seem obvious, but I point it out because we're currently living in what some sociologists call a victimhood culture. Meaning it seems like everybody now has a grievance. Everybody feels wronged and everybody's upset about it, and meanwhile nobody's admitting any responsibility. We see this in politics, we see it in social media, we see it in how polarized our society has become. There's a song by one of my favorite bands, the Yvette Brothers, that pokes fun at this victimhood culture. It's called Victims of Life, and it goes like this. Victims of cycles, victims of life, victims of wrong, victims of right, victims of anything and all the above. Victims of hate, victims of love, Victims of winning, victims of loss, victims of payment, victims of costs. You got the victims of violence and the victims of peace. You were all victims exactly like me, victims of anything, all the above, victims of hate, victims of love. Now, I think that what they're getting at here is that you can be a victim of anything, even things that on the surface are good things because it all depends on your attitude. Are you the passive victim of life? Or are you the active agent of your life taking responsibility for your situation? Now there's two big problems with identifying as a victim. The first is that if you see yourself as a victim, you're basically stuck because you're saying somebody else is responsible for your life and that means that that person has the power, not you. And that's why in our victimhood culture, we are seeing such high rates of anxiety and depression because I think a lot of people feel like they have no control over things. But there is a deeper problem as well. When we identify as victims, 
when we say that we're completely innocent and somebody else is completely guilty, we obscure the truth. Because the real truth is that everybody is both a victim and a perpetrator. The world is not black and white. There are not good people and bad people. All people, said the Apostle Paul, fall short of the glory of God. The greatest saint is simultaneously a hopeless sinner, and the worst sinner is capable of love. And if you want to go even deeper, then you have to admit that actually there's a connection between victims and perpetrators. Because often perpetrators are ones who were victims as children. Last week, a woman named Amber McLaughlin was executed in Missouri. And she was in the news because she was the first transgendered person to ever be executed in this country. But when I was reading the stories about her, my eye caught something else. It was her childhood. She was the victim of horrific abuse at the hands of her parents. Now, that is not to excuse her crimes. They were terrible. She absolutely was the perpetrator of great harm. But can anyone deny that she was also a victim? And of course, this is how it often happens. People who are victimized go on to victimize others. She is obviously an extreme example, but I think that this is true in all of our lives. The hurts that we carry from our past, if we don't heal them, we go on to act them out on other people. We take that pain and we unconsciously spread it around wherever we go. And of course, that is our responsibility. Our childhood is not our responsibility, but now that we are adults, we are responsible for that pain that we put out there into the world. And that is why repentance matters. Because in the Christian view of life, there is a way to get off that hamster wheel of victimhood culture. There is a way to heal. It's called repentance. And I can already hear the objections. Victims don't need to repent. Victims should never have to apologize. Certainly in our current culture, the tendency is never to admit wrongdoing, to always point the finger at somebody else. It's always their fault, not mine. Well, here's the problem. If you love someone and you want them to heal the past, the only way to do that is repentance. I mean, you don't have to repent for things that were done to you. For those harms, there is forgiveness, and that's a related subject for another sermon. And that comes after repentance. First, you have to admit all the ways that you take your pain and hurt other people with it. And that is the only way to real freedom. That's the only way to have a new beginning. And that's why so many people came to John the Baptist. It was an amazing thing. All of these sophisticated people from Jerusalem left the city and wandered out into the desert to see a strange man who was offering baptism for the repentance of sin. John was not a gentle preacher. I mean, honestly, he seems kind of angry when we read about him in the New Testament. He told people to their faces, you are a sinner. God is furious with you. But if you're willing to repent, you can come into these waters and you can be changed. Surprisingly, people really responded to that message. And I suspect it's because people were tired of being victims. I mean, you think about Jewish people in the first century, they had plenty of reasons to complain about life, a lot more, in fact, than most people today. They legitimately were victims of centuries of political oppression, but they had control over some things, 
And in those realms in which they had agency, people wanted a new beginning. They were tired of feeling like they had no power. They were tired of blaming others for their problems. They were tired of being unhappy. They were ready to say, I take responsibility for my life. I see that the problem is me. I repent of my sins and ask God for forgiveness. They went into the water and they came out and they had a new beginning. Now that was powerful for them, but I want to ask you a question. What would happen if someone came to John who truly was a victim? In other words, what if someone, hypothetically of course, had no sin in their life? What if there were a person who was pure love and actually incapable of acting out pain on other people? No matter how much pain he experienced, he was always forgiving other people. What if there were a person like that? Well, that would mean, of course, that that person would not need baptism because baptism is for the repentance of sin, and yet that is what happened when Jesus came to John. That's our reading for today. It's from the third chapter of Matthew. Let us listen to what God's Spirit is saying to us today. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth on this, your holy word, would be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus Christ, the only human being to ever live without sin, seek out a baptism for the repentance of sin? I mean, he knew who John was. He knew what baptism meant. Baptism was for sinners. And of course, John himself immediately understood the problem. He sees Jesus coming and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need to baptize you. You, need, you should be baptizing me. I'm the sinner, not you. In response to which, Jesus says, John, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, there's a plan here. I know it doesn't make sense, but I know what I'm doing. So what was he doing? Well, here's where a little theology can help. What our tradition tells us is that when Christ was born on earth, he joined our lives so that we could join his. The perfect God entered into human imperfection. Why? So that we could enter into his love. The Apostle Paul put it this way, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that word righteousness. Jesus said this is to fulfill all righteousness. What's being described here is an exchange, and to use a really big word that theologians call it double imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ. His goodness is imputed to us. A better way to think about this is that a deal is made. Christ takes the sin over which we are powerless. 
all the ways we act out our pain on other people. He takes all of that. And in exchange, we get the holiness that can only come from God. And here's what this actually looks like when we are baptized. We get to hear the words that were originally meant only for him. If you remember the reading, just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. These are such beautiful words. They are the intimate words that a father speaks to a son. They are tender parental words. You are loved. I am pleased with you. You are my child. I mean, honestly, what better words could any of us hear? If you knew that these three things were true, wouldn't that alone change your life? If you knew that God loved you, that God approved of you, that God calls you his very child, I mean, one thing is for sure, you would no longer feel like a victim. Because if anyone loses in this deal, it's Christ. He gets the short end of the stick. He takes our sin, and we get his divine status. He takes all the meanness and pride and he gives us the closeness that he feels with God. He goes to the cross, we are forgiven. It is the best deal ever. It cost him everything, it costs us almost nothing. And I say almost nothing because it does cost us one thing and it's one thing that we really shouldn't want in the first place, it's our pride. We have to admit that we're the problem. We have to admit the same thing that those people who came to John the Baptist admitted, that not only are we victims, we are also perpetrators because we take all the pain that we've experienced in our life and we act it out on other people, we judge them, we ignore them, and in addition to the active sin that we commit, we waste time. There are so many, these are sins of omission. There are so many things we could do that we don't. We fail to do the good work we could do in the world because we sit around feeling victimized. Now, admitting that in our popular culture would seem like utter defeat. But in the Christian view, it's a new beginning. It is real freedom for the first time. And you know, freedom is not what most people think it is. Freedom is not the ability to be self-centered. It's not the opportunity to do whatever makes us feel good all the time. That kind of freedom leads to a life without any meaning. Real freedom is admitting that we are the problem and then letting go of control. And I know that sounds odd, that someone would be free by admitting their sin. But that is the paradox of the gospel, that God does what you cannot if you admit you need him to. And so as we start a new year, I want to end with describing a journey that you may want to take. It's a journey into the desert to see a man named John. In order to meet him, you have to leave your preoccupations behind. You might have to take a day off work. You might have to arrange for child care. Now, if you go, you will find other people on the path, and I encourage you to follow them because chances are they're like you. They're tired of trying to control everything in life. They're ready to admit defeat. They're ready for a new beginning. Eventually, you'll come to the river, and you'll see a strange-looking man 
He's wearing animal skins. He has a long beard. His skin is like leather. He smells faintly of locusts. He's beckoning you to come into the water. I want to leave you with a question. Can you leave the blaming behind? Can you leave the resentments behind? Can you step into the water as a child would, ready for a new adventure? Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for meeting us in the waters of baptism. Through them, we die to sin and we come alive in Christ. For anyone here today who is ready for that new beginning, I pray that they would respond to your grace. Give them a new identity dedicated to agape love and formed in the body of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.